so much. Good morning, everyone. Um, Pentecost Sunday, glorious. And Steve, thank you so much for leading us in our prayers. Um, we pray now, Holy Spirit, come, as you did then. Come now and rest on each one of us with the measure that you know that we need. In Jesus' name. There's one of the greatest Bible study verses at the end of the passage that Mike read out. All were amazed and perplexed, asking what does it mean, which is what should be happening in our Bible study groups. We're amazed and perplexed by what God is doing amongst us, and asking God what it means in our day as well to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So there's two stories that we've had now. We're going to see the link between the two, and you probably made that link already, but there's a third story that's going to be coming in under the radar, and it relates to Elijah and his battle with the prophets of Baal and the prophets of Asherah, Nine, uh, four, uh, like 850 people in all, um, these false prophets, and we're going to see a link there, and actually see, I hope, how amazing this story of Pentecost is that is so familiar to us. And I've called it the great uh, dispersal reversal, because God is reversing the dispersal at Babylon, uh, at Babel, sorry and calling his people to be scattered and sent this time, not in disobedience, but in obedience. And it's, it's a good thing because it's good news. And this is what is deliberately being done by the text. The writer, Luke, who wrote Acts, is deliberately doing, uh, writing it like that. So, this promise of the divine gift is available to anybody and everybody right now upon repentance of sins and confession of faith. And if you're a believer, it's available right now de facto, ready for you to cry out and call out to God in holy relationship and love for Him and what He's called you to do. It's available right now. And it literally is the very definition of the gift that keeps on giving. Right? God's riches are inexhaustible unending, eternal. And so when God says he pours out his Holy Spirit, it's not like our oil wells around the world that are running dry. It's an eternal fount of his presence. Isn't that good? So when a believer is dry or hungry or burdened or joyless or lifeless or just whatever they need and, and in a sense it connects with Steve's testimony as well, that gift is always available. God will always speak because he's a speaking God. He will always create because he's a creating God. And he will always redeem because he's a... <laughs> Excellent. So this story precedes Peter's first Pentecost sermon. And here we discover 17 nations, probably Jews, that have remained scattered around the known world following the two exiles, first to Assyria and then to Babylon. And they were gathered now in their own, in their own homeland, hearing the gospel in their own language. And of course, the allusion is to Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. And, and here at the Tower of Babel, it's the, the story of arrogance and pride in trying to Gain godlike power, godlike knowledge. It's the problem of Genesis 3. 
Did God really say, if you eat from this tree, you will gain knowledge of good and evil? And so God comes down, walks around the town and just rebukes their egotistical sin and their folly and their arrogance and their pride. And what does he do? He scatters and confuses the people. Those two words are used in the Acts 2 passage and it's meant to take us straight back between these two stories. There's a reversal going on. The Acts 2 passage says that the tongues came on the, on the disciples and separated them and then the people, when they heard it, were bewildered. So we have this language of being scattered and confused or separated and bewildered that's meant to unite these two stories about what God is doing in the world. So, in Genesis 11, the nations are dispersed by divine fiat. God has spoken his judgment. In Acts 2, the nations represented are not scattered now, but gathered up into him, into Christ, and then sent out, not in disobedience, <clears throat> but in obedience, not in judgment, but in love for God. And so we have the dispersal in Genesis 11 and the reversal dispersal in Acts 2. Now, I don't know if you are good at geography or anything, but if you notice the way these countries are named in Genesis 11, they're named from east to west, and this is exactly the same shape that Luke takes in Acts 2. The, the 17 nations represented, or 17 people groups, are named in the known world from east to west. And so the promise of God, the Holy Spirit, in a person who believes on Jesus Christ, is the great reversal. A reversal of sin and pride and egoism. A reversal of Babel. Confusion at Babel becomes communion because of Christ. Scattered in judgment becomes gathered because of the gospel. And if all of this talk about Babel can be confusing, it's like, well, Babel, what, what was that? It's only, it's only a building project by some, some guys in the ancient, in the pre-historical world. But does it happen today? Well, we know that egotistic pride happens today, don't we? So what would that look like in our day, do you think? Well, I've got a wonderful example for you. I was listening. If you're, just, you know, if you're thinking that all of this Babel talk is just for the Bible, it's precisely for our day too. I was listening to a talk by a guy who used to be a very vocal atheist just a few years ago, and he converted to Christ. Quite out of the blue, quite like C.S. Lewis actually, reluctantly. You know, they're my favourite type of converts because you know it really annoys them. He was giving a talk on a YouTube channel called Unheard, and he was quoting a scientist who said this. This is the scientist. We are making God, notice the arrogance already, right? We are making God as we are implementing technology that is ever more all-knowing, ever-present, all-powerful, 
and beneficent and geoethical with nanotechnology and will ultimately connect all consciousness and so control the cosmos. What a humble position to take. That is a techno tower of Babel. In our day, I, I, I couldn't make this up, I, I wish I was. He then quoted a, a, a senior engineer at Google who was asked a question. Does God exist? Now most normal people would either say yes or no, or I don't know. Do you know what the arrogance of this man responded with? Does God exist? Not yet. <laughs> Do you see what they're doing? They're putting this technology into our lives in such a way that we can't live without it. I wonder if it's a new Tower of Babel, and I wonder when a time of judgment will come as a result of this. And this is where artificial intelligence, transhumanism, and post-humanism literally become the new Tower of Babel. It is frightening. And to see it and to know it is even more frightening. It's not just bricks going up into the sky. It's the arrogance of human pride and folly in trying to gain God-like power. We're not free to do that. And so God has to rescue us on the one hand, but like with the Babel story, he judges. So now, if you remember Acts 1 verse 8, which is the key verse of the whole book, it's the structure and shape of the whole book, Acts is a geographically structured book. Jesus said to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses. Sorry, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus said you'll be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly how the book of Acts then plays out. So the gospel is this gathering. Acts 2 verse 1. They were gathered in one place, right? So that then they could be scattered into the whole world. Very much like church, a, a pattern of church. We're gathered now only to be scattered. We gather around one loaf. We break it and scatter it so that we could become one body. You see the links, right? And this is why in Romans, Paul is desperate, as he says. One of the reasons he writes the Roman letter is because he wants to not just commend his gospel, but also to say, will you support me on my way to Spain? Not for a holiday, but who else wanted to go to Spain in the Old Testament? Jonah, Tarshish, is Spain. He wanted to go to Spain, not for a holiday, but to run away from God, who was kind towards the Assyrians. Again, it's another reversal. Paul is going to the ends of the earth, the furthest reaches of the empire. And so there's a great reversal this verse. And it's no coincidence, of course, that wind and fire are mentioned in the Acts 2 passage. <clears throat> wind and fire, as you will know, are symbols of the Holy Spirit. There are three main symbols in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. Wind, fire, and 
I can't, I can't go with my wife's answer. But water, yeah. Looks like we've colluded. Water can be used for good or ill, can't it? It can save life and it can take life. Fire, it's great. It can take life or save life. Wind has enormous destructive possibilities and yet can be so refreshing on a hot sunny day like today. It is also no coincidence that when God brings the fire, as in Pentecost, there are two possible things that occur. Firstly, either a person repents and trusts in the message of the gospel and finds the saving grace of Jesus Christ, or the second option is that they cling to the sin in a Babel kind of way. No, I'll go it alone, thank you very much. I'll, I'll find my godlike power on my own, thank you. And then, of course, they'll be judged and exposed by the living God. But the third option is water. And this is where I want to relate the story of Elijah and his cosmic battle with the prophets of Baal. And we, as much as I could listen to Mike reading scripture all day, we thought we'd just plumb for two readings. So I'm going to kind of just skirt around the edges on this. The story involves a lot of fire and a lot of water. It took place on Mount Carmel, which is just below Haifa, modern day Israel, Haifa, just to the east of the, uh, west of the Sea of Galilee. And once again, this is a, a, a foundational, archetypal story of God's victory over the idols of the nations. Babel was all about idolatry, the idolatry of the self. Mount Carmel was about the idolatry of the gods of the nations. Elijah tells the wicked king Ahab to gather up all of his... 450, the king of Israel, 450 prophets of Baal he had, and as if that wasn't bad enough, Elijah said, also get your 400 prophets of Asherah, two hugely significant gods of the nations. Get all of them, get all of them, Ahab, get all of them, you wicked king, and gather to this mountain. And in 2 Kings 18 verse 21, Elijah asks them a simple question. Now, just notice the mocking language of Elijah. He said, how long will you go on limping between opinions? This, this is, it almost describes me pre-conversion. I was kind of sitting on the fence, limping between maybe there's a God, maybe there isn't a God. How are we to know anyway until God turned up in my little blue mini and said, Cooey, I do exist. Now will you stop limping between two opinions, Richard? So I had a decision to make. So Elijah is mocking them at this point. He says, how long will you go on limping between these two opinions? If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, Elijah says, follow him. Why not? Nothing to lose, right? So the false prophets build their altar. And so does Elijah. He builds an altar. The false prophets 
of Baal and Asherah sacrifice a bull, so does Elijah. Elijah. And Elijah says in verse 24, the God who answers by fire, he is God. Whew. It's going to get hot in here. The prophets, as they prance around, doing incantations, calling on God, from, as it says in the text, from morning until noon, Elijah begins to mock them. Because the silence from their fake God is deafening. Elijah's like, where is he? Has he gone shopping? And more shockingly, he says, maybe he's gone to the toilet. Maybe he's relieving himself and he can't hear you. And so the prophets ramp up their prayer. They start cutting themselves. And so the land is now flowing with blood of these false prophets. It is a horrific, horrific scene. This is what the gods of the nations will do. They will hurt you. So, nothing happens until Elijah's turn. <laughs> Buckle up. And to add to the drama, Elijah doesn't just call down fire from heaven. He pours gallons and gallons of water on the altar. And it fills the trench around the altar. It's a deep trench. The thing is saturated right now. And then Elijah says in verses 38 and 39, or the text says rather, Then the fire of Yahweh fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stone and the dust and it licked up the water till, it was, till the land was dry. God's all in, isn't he? All or nothing with him. And all the people fell on their faces and said, Yahweh is God, Yahweh is God. And Elijah put them to death by the sword, by the command of God. It's a terribly um, awakening scene, shall we say. That fire that consumed that sacrifice, that altar, the stone and the dust and the water, is the same fire that fell at Pentecost. And it's the same fire that Steve prayed would fall today. It's the same fire that Carol has chosen songs for to represent Pentecost. It's the same fire because it's the same God. And he's all in. And as Steve's testimony alluded to, are you all in? Are we all in? With the God who is all in? Praise God. So the fire fell at Pentecost, and only this time it was not a consuming fire. It didn't consume the disciples when it landed on them, but it was a, an indwelling fire. It lived in them, in the same way that the burning bush, when Moses was drawn to this bush that was on fire that wasn't consumed, it indwelt the bush. And so God can live with people, people can live with God without being consumed because of his great mercy. And there's a wonderful line in Ezekiel 37, 27, which I'm going to read now. Revelation 21 verse 3 picks up this same idea too. But you'll notice the connections. Ezekiel 37, 27. My dwelling place shall be with them. 
which is to say us, people. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. That, that line is like a signature of God writ large across the human race. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It's like God's repeated signature and promise to the people all the way down through history and to us here today. He will be your God, and you will be his, his people. And then it says... And then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Praise God. This is the backdrop to Peter's Pentecost sermon. That's why he can say with absolute confidence in Acts 2.21 And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The next verse has Peter saying, the Jesus that you crucified, which is another way to say, because Peter's responsible too, right? He's not just pointing the finger. And so we can say, this Jesus whom we crucified as a human race is God's promise to the nations. To rescue and to redeem and to restore from our arrogance and our folly and our egoism. Pray for that chief engineer at Google. My goodness me, what a stupid thing to say. What a stupid thing to claim. We haven't made God yet. So when the gospel message cuts us, it doesn't cut us like the prophets of Baal were cutting themselves. It cuts to the heart. Right? That's the point. It cuts, but in a healing, saving, redeeming kind of way. And the only thing left to do, Acts 2.38, is to repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift that keeps on giving of the Holy Spirit. And when this fire falls, and I pray that you know what I'm talking about when I say this, you are not consumed. Just to re-emphasise that point. We are not consumed as the burning bush of Exodus 3 was not consumed. We are not consumed so that we can commune with God. With a holy God who lives in each and every believer. That's why we are his sanctuary. This is the promise of Pentecost, the great reversal dispersal. And that's why now every believer is sent wherever God would call them to proclaim Christ in word and deed. Your lives tell the story of God. You go knowing that you are forgiven of your soul-destroying sin. You go proclaiming a message that sets captives free. Restores us to our right mind. In holy relationship to a holy God. Who saves us because he loves us. I wonder what it is that you need restoring to God today.
What is it? Name it if you can. Name the thing that you need to God and see that he doesn't go all in with you. So may the fire fall. May the wind blow. May the water flow. Praise the Father, praise the Son, and praise the Holy Spirit. Three in one. And all God's people say.